thank you for a really, really good paper. That's an important topic and one that hasn't been studied adequately. And I really enjoyed it. I want to thank you all for being here and uh, wondering why you're picking diseases instead of other things to <laughs> amuse you on an afternoon. Uh, and I want to thank the sponsors. I, I sure wish the Montana legislature had been a little more generous in its attitude towards the Historical Society. Back in uh, 1987, uh, a, a colleague of mine who worked at the MSU library suggested that we take a look at the flu pandemic in Montana. Uh, at that time, there was a renewed interest in the subject partly because of new genetic information about the flu virus and uh, partly because Alfred Crosby, uh, who was over at Washington State, had published a book, uh, a really good book in 1976, on the uh, flu pandemic in the United States. Now there's a literal explosion of literature. If you Google uh, the flu pandemic, you're going to get a ton of stuff. I'll discuss that a little bit. Uh, uh, at the end. And if you have a question, please raise your hand simply because if there's anything technical, we can square it away right away. We live in a time when many of our fellow Americans choose to accept only those aspects of science which accord with their own beliefs. Two years ago, communities faced serious issues with children who became ill because their parents refused to vaccinate them against preventable diseases. Rumors and outright falsehoods are accepted as hard fact because the individual knows better than those distant intellectuals who constitute some form of alien elite. In the period studied in this year's annual program, the situation was quite different. Medical science had conquered one killer of, of children, diphtheria, and other vaccines were coming online. Even when science could not respond effectively, as in this, this influenza pandemic, the microbe hunters were well regarded. The pandemic of 1918-19 was the most serious natural disaster of the 20th century. Montana suffered as one of the most four, uh, of one of the four most affected states. Over 500,000 Americans died at that time, and among them were a little over 5,000 Montanans. Nobody really knows how many died globally. You will see some estimates as high as 100 million, but the accepted numbers run between about 35 and 50 million. Certain areas of the world were simply depopulated and disappeared. The villages in Alaska, islands in the Pacific, parts of India, they were so heavily hit that nobody survived. The survivors died of starvation, hardship, or other problems. Informed estimates are all that we have. Some of the more remote areas, even in Montana, suffered and were not reported very well. So, quotation, do you know that this is the most peculiar disease I have ever seen. Some persons hardly know that they are sick until they're dying. We had only three fatalities in Glasgow, but Malta and Wolf Point are suffering dreadfully. This is an excerpt 
of a letter sent by Miss Pamelia Clark, superintendent of the Francis Mahone Deaconess Hospital in Glasgow. As the disease swept through northeast Montana, five of her own nurses and a housekeeper went down with it. After placing them in quarantine, she improvised a hospital in Wolf Point. Twenty having died in Malta, she responded to their calls by taking the train and finding a rooming house which she could use as a hospital. She found two women who, who she could use as nurses even though they had little training. Whether by chance, luck, or good nursing, the Gla Glasgow was spared in, latest, in later waves of infection. And incidentally, it seems like the, the first wave, there are really three waves, one, one occurring in late September and then really getting rolling in in the third week of October, then about a Christmas wave, and then a late spring wave. And the October wave nationally and in Montana was the killer. Thousands of people sickened suddenly and many of them died. In her letter, Ms. Clark noted a phenomenon which became one of the central issues in the fight against the flu pandemic, crowd control. Quote, in Malta, saloons and pool halls were open, lobbies of hotels full of school children and adults and patients who were being taken to the hotels and allowed to run at will. She knew only too well that this disease was terribly contagious easily spread by sneezing and coughing. And I spare you, there are hundreds of pictures of people with gauze masks and so on. And, and sometimes students used to think, well, that would protect them. No, the idea was they didn't spill a lot of stuff out into the environment. It protected you. And uh, you still see that a lot in Japan and some other areas. Her efforts represent the best of skilled nursing care. She displayed a take-charge attitude, which was undoubtedly comforting to her patients. And she exhibited organizational drive, which was a life-saving gift to many in this sparsely settled new state. Montana was fortunate in that the Deaconess Movement, a Methodist effort with a training center in Great Falls, graduated young women who were struggling to save thousands of patients in those long months from August of 1918 to June of 1919. The State Board of Health was established, as you already heard, just 12 years after the new state was formed in 1889. It was an era, an era of progressive politics. Science could and would be harnessed to the service of humanity, and public policy would light a path to human progress. Women now acquiring a better education would find positions in the public sphere. Indeed, the best indicator of family growth in many parts of Montana was the availability of young teachers who would then become future brides and community leaders. Montana's Medical Association was progressive and it included a cadre of well-trained and talented physicians and surgeons when, when we were discussing uh, tuberculosis, I was thinking of Carolyn McGill, who founded the, along with Merrill Burningame from our department, founded the Museum of the Rockies. And Dr. McGill was at the Murray Hospital in Butte, and one of the, one of the sh movers and shakers in the 1920s and 30s of the tuberculosis 
uh, movement. And it's a pity she wasn't able to do more at that time. The 1910 census counted 376,000 Montanans. And the Homestead era probably added around 70,000 newcomers by 1918. We don't have firm numbers for that big boom in, in homesteading 1914, 15, 16. I, I know uh, my, my uh, uh, wife's dad came from Iowa, he and a brother and uh, homesteaded up out of Dutton in 19... Actually, they bought a homestead, which was much more common than going out and, and getting it right off the bat. But uh, that, was, that was a big population movement, and of course it moved away uh, after the war as drought and, and lower crop prices hit. At any rate, uh, people were used to seeing medical science at that time, tackle formidable problems like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and they were taking a look at tuberculosis. Initially, uh, it was easy to overlook the flu epidemic. It was not, at that time, dangerous enough for local physicians to report it to the state. Uh, it would change. But the fact is that in the late 1890s, very early 1901, there had been waves of, of influenza, but they had not been lethal to this extent. So they were, it was not a feared disease until it was too late and recognized as a deadly one. In fact, many didn't know much about it because of the war. Censorship had uh, shut off all comments about typhus outbreaks in Central Europe and, and so on. And so consequently, among Montana learned with the rest of the country uh, about flu because it was reported from the Spanish press. So it became the Spanish flu. And some of you may recall that. The critical medical issue for the state was simply the predominance of a younger, vulnerable population. Unlike most diseases, which decimated the youngest and the oldest, that influenza of 1918 struck at the heart of the healthiest. The median age of the most vulnerable flu victims was 28. You can imagine what a shock that was when people began to learn only afterwards what this effect was. By the third week of, third week of October, Missoula counted 800 cases and 38 deaths. The death rate was roughly 8 point something percent, but it will vary rapidly. On the, on the reservations it was more, and, and I'll point out at the end, a new study of Canada showed it was horrendously lethal with the Native American populations in northern Canada. City fathers in, uh, in uh, Missoula took precautionary measures, quote, all saloons, pool rooms, bowling alleys closed, as well as cigar stores. No sales are allowed for ice cream or soft drinks, and consumption must be off-premises when permitted. All clerks, barbers, and messenger boys must wear masks while on duty. Bozeman, Libby, and other towns followed suit with these local regulations regulating the uh, gathering of more than a few people at a time. Butte, however, as always, was different. 
with its 90,000 residents, it had first-rate medical facilities. Butte citizens were organized and vocal, not so much about the threat of flu as, a, as a, about asserting their own self-interest. Their then mayor, W.H. Maloney, took a cosmopolitan approach. Having visited Vancouver, British Columbia, he asserted that Canadians had learned that it was best to leave the saloons open because, he said, reasonable consumption of liquor was better than too much medicine. <laughs> when it became clear in 1918 that the disease was so contagious and so lethal, the State Board of, it, of, uh, of Health intervened to close those saloons, churches, and other public places. City leaders had been bitterly divided, and the city council, by a vote of six to five, had prevented the mayor and other leaders from implementing these closures. One of the real sticking points wasn't so much closing the saloon, which could admit maybe five at a time, and in a big bar that didn't seem to be a problem. The real problem were these mom-and-pop local grocery stores, and the women who ran them declared that their businesses not only would not survive if they were closed, but they should remain open because they served a narrow neighborhood clientele, and they were certainly not big enough to be a major gathering place for any large group of people. Butte had, by Thanksgiving, suffered 3,500 cases, and one-third of the state deaths would occur in Silver Bowl Butte. To handle 20 or so deaths a day in this period, undertakers made their rounds 24-7. They never brought their wagons in except to unload them. By Christmas, larger stores in Butte posted armed guards in order to regulate entry and to keep buyers uh, from forming a major crowd at one or another counter. Street, uh, street debris and dust were seen to be dangerous, so the major roads were hosed down regularly. Anecdotes circulated about certain occupations which seemed charmed. Quote, not one of these street department employees is ill though they have been breathing much dust, reported the New York, or excuse me, the Great Falls Tribune, who had visited the city at this time. He said also that underground miners enjoyed charm lives. In other areas, workers and uh, butchers and so on, uh, carpenters were singled out. These, these people, Methodists might be included too, uh, these people seemed to survive at a greater rate than their fellows. Burns experienced over a thousand cases in that October wave. Amelia Clark's experience with insufficient hospital beds was the case throughout the state, and in Billings, the Congregational and Methodist churches were uh, volunteered and used as, as infirmaries, and the Rotary Club volunteers offered nursing and maintenance care wherever they could. This was a case throughout the state. People did pitch in and they did help and they tried to do everything to ameliorate uh, the situation in their little communities. Uh, in fact, some communities 
uh, almost turned out to a person to, to assist afflicted families and so on. It is <clears throat> in, in, uh, on October 21st of 1918, the Billings Gazette reported that in spite of a city ordinance, a thousand cases had occurred. Quote, John Todd Jr., 25, a prominent local merchant had died. He was the son of the county commissioner. When the spring 1919 wave passed, Yellowstone County had reported 170 deaths and 12,000 cases. With that many cases, it's probably true that the death rate was higher. Uh, we'll see in a minute. It's generally agreed now that the pandemic began with the avian population in China and spread rapidly around the globe in a couple of waves, both east and west, at the same time. All armies were affected, and American soldiers' deaths were initially reported in camps in Kansas and Massachusetts. You heard early at the, at the noon talk, uh, the United States was woefully, woefully unprepared for World War I. Uh, we had a, an army of less than 100,000 and uh, it's a very small off officer corps. Uh, some of our most trained uh, soldiers were, of course, black soldiers, buffalo soldiers, who had been up at Fort Assiniboine and so on. But they were shunted off into the French army, who knew how to handle them. At any rate, uh, nobody knows how many soldiers died in the Russian and other armies. The German army didn't keep very good records. Uh, they, their, their deaths certificates which were del delivered to their families didn't specify it just said died in combat and so we don't really know how many died but there are books now claiming that the armistice came about because of the influenza epidemic in all armies and the weakening of, of the military power of those armies at any rate uh, military deaths were reported throughout the state and, and if you if you have a serious interest in this, uh, the Historical Society digitized the state papers. And you can go online, hit the Historical Society website, and you can read during this period a lot of deaths. You can, you can find them in all of the papers, many of them weekly, of course, but they will record them. Uh, what struck my eyes is the Shotoacantha on October 31st reported, quote, on Saturday, October 26th, the remains of Martin James Wallace, oldest son of Mr. and Mrs. William Wallace, arrived in Shoto. Funeral services were held at the house. Remember, you couldn't gather in churches. At 2 p.m. on Sunday, conducted by the Reverend L. F. Haley, of the Episcopal Church, who spoke along patriotic lines. At the conclusion of the services, the residents at, uh, at the residence, the Masons took charge of the body. At the conclusion of their services, all that was mortal of this soldier boy who gave his life for his country was, were laid reverently beneath the earth. And if you know the Shoto Cemetery, it's a really gorgeous 
place to die, I guess, if you have to go. Note that the church had been closed, so only a minimal number of mourners could attend. The sermon appeared in the same issue of the paper, quote, remember you, you couldn't go hear it in church, you couldn't accompany that many in the house, so let's put it in the paper. Reverend Haley took for his text the words of the 24th verse of the 20th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Quote, Neither found I my de life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy. And that is one cryptic bunch of words, but Jimmy, he said, never thought of himself, but how best he could serve his country. He died for you, for your families, and for your homes. I charge his death right up to the place where it belongs, the Prussian autocracy. He concluded, as far as I, as I, for myself is concerned, I hereby pledge myself that so long as I live, I will never buy, eat, or wear anything marked made in Germany. And that leads into another bit of the program, doesn't it? This hideous anti-German situation that occurred. And remember in Lewistown when they were burning books and so on, the fire spread that burned down their new high school. It was as if all the world's ills, including this terrible plague, came from Germany. Goaded by propaganda and political repression, Montana joined with other good Americans in persecuting Germans and their culture. When we forgot that lesson, we returned to it in the wake of Pearl Harbor and did the same thing to loyal Americans of Japanese descent. Learning from history may be hard, but it's a lot cheaper than repeating expensive mistakes. The Board of Health report from 1919 brought into clear focus the overwhelming caseloads incurred during the pandemic. And this is all one quotation. Now that the pandemic epidemic has apparently, to some extent, subsided, it might be well to look back and see what a swath it cut in Montana. In October 1918, 19,980 cases were reported. In the following month, November, 12,177 cases. And in December, 5,410 for a total of 37,567 cases. But this does not represent the full number of cases as the reports are incomplete. That's the end of that Board of, Health, Board of Health report. Dr. John Sippy reviewed the data in 1920, and he found that 12,000, or excuse me, 1,266 more Montanans had died just in the last wave. He, est he estimated that overworked physicians had underreported cases by about 50%. If that were true, one-third of the state's population contracted influenza. Montanans pulled together to assist where they could. Bankers in one town assisted understaffed banks in other towns. Ministers, housewives, farmers, all pitched in to help where they could. The Red Cross was already geared up to provide bandages and 
and other things for our troops abroad. And many of them form teams to become nursing assistants in the areas where they lived. A few individual physicians were noted for their ability to save all their patients. There were many anecdotes after the war that in Shoto, this doctor had never lost a person. Or in other towns, Hobson and so on, that area, that doctor never lost a person. We don't know that's true, but it's, chances are it's probably pretty accurate because these people, even though the Montana landscape has changed so much, these communities were real communities then because you had to be close to send your kids to school and stuff. And so they probably knew pretty well who was really effective at preventing death. It was so sad, and, and when we did the article years ago, we tracked some of these deaths in the more remote farming areas where a family, the adults would be dead, the children would be starving because there was no one there to take care of them. There were just some heartbreaking uh, uh, situations with this. Well, back in 1987, when we wrote on the subject, the best explanation for the stunningly sudden death of healthy adults, and a typical story would be, he went to work in the, in the morning, he became sick, and so he came home around 4 o'clock, and by 6 o'clock he was dead. And this happened repeatedly. 